All right. Today we are, uh, we're going to be introduced to what I think is one of the most um, foundational principles. It's really a, a leadership principle that is, uh, it, it's incredible to see and it's incredible as we kind of get into the story to see how it was introduced. It's, it's one of those things that, that if you admire anyone in leadership, this is one of the things you admire about them. If you tend to not admire a leader, I'm guessing this is one of the things you don't admire about them. You can lead without this, but you can't be a leader worth following without um, kind of living this principle. And the extraordinary concept actually explains, in part, why a first century Jewish cult that followed a crucified leader that had no territory, no military, and no authority not only survived the first, second, and third century, but they actually thrived. And not only that, this, this kind of religious sect, this cult, it went on to kind of overthrow an empire that set out to destroy it and eradicate it and became the religion of the empire. We've said throughout the series that Jesus came into the world to introduce something brand new to the world and for the world. What Jesus came to introduce was a radical departure from what was, from everything that was, really. It was a radical departure from the ways of the kingdoms of this world, or really the way the world thinks. What's the norm? What's the default? How does everyone kind of operate? Well, that doesn't seem normal. That doesn't seem like it fits in. For everything that fits in and everything that's normal, Jesus came to create something and introduce something brand new from that. It was a complete departure from what was, from that kind of thinking, from religious structures, from leadership structures. Because up until this point, religious structures and leadership structures had all kind of flowed up, right? It was, it was from, or rather from the top down. It went from the top down that whoever was on the top was the most powerful and most influential. What was, everything was used for his benefit. But when Jesus comes along, he says, no, no, I'm shifting things. I'm going to make things brand new. As a matter of fact, I'm going to turn the world upside down. Back to our story. The most controversial, and I guess the miracle that really caused the most disruption during Jesus' ministry was when he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Now, the reason, uh, and this is a really famous story, so if you spend any time in church, you probably have heard this. If you went to Sunday school as a kid, I'm guessing you're familiar with this story. But the reason this caused such a disruption and kind of sent the world into chaos it isn't just because Jesus healed this man, and Jesus did heal him, or he actually raised him from the dead, because Lazarus was dead. He was like dead dead. He wasn't dead like, you know, he just stopped breathing for a little bit, but we're not really sure. Like, maybe he just fell asleep, and he was in a deep sleep, and Jesus woke him up. That, that's not the kind of dead we're talking about. When Jesus finds Lazarus, he's dead dead. He's entombed and embalmed, and like the, the funeral's already passed. They've hired the mourners. The, the, the stone's been rolled in front of the, in front of the tomb. Like, like he is dead, dead, dead. It, it's beyond even being prepared for dead. He was prepared. He's dead, and now he's in a tomb. And Jesus finds him. And, and this, this, this interesting story, you really should read it. It's rather incredible. <clears throat> when, when Lazarus, this man Lazarus, when he gets sick, they send a messenger to Jesus to come find him because Lazarus and Jesus are friends. The messenger finds Jesus and his disciples. He says, hey, Lazarus is really sick. We need you to come back and pray for him. And the disciples, they kind of get up and say, okay, I, I guess we're off. And Jesus says, hey, where are you going? We're going to go, you know, you know, go meet Lazarus and pray for him. No, we're not. Sit down. I mean, it's really almost disturbing. And Jesus waits, and he waits, and he waits until Lazarus is not just dead, but until he's dead, entombed, and embalmed, and like, done. And then Jesus shows up, and Jesus does what only Jesus can do. He prays, and this man Lazarus, who's been dead for days, who stinks, his flesh is already beginning to rot, he comes back to life and comes out of a tomb. Now, if that isn't amazing enough, because that's amazing, the reason this caused so much chaos is because Lazarus is a known man. 
Lazarus is known all throughout the town of Bethany where he was from. He's actually wealthy and popular, so he's known outside of his town. People throughout the land, they begin to hear about this guy Lazarus, and they know him. It's like, man, he died? I know him. And, and, and it almost becomes kind of this tourist attraction where people are beginning to sneak into, into the city to see Lazarus because they can't believe what they're hearing. Word begins to spread about this, this event, about Jesus raising this man from the dead all across the countryside. As a matter of fact, it spread kind of quickly. In John it says, but some of them, those who are kind of spreading the word, who are passing on this miracle that Jesus did, they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the word has spread all the way out to Jerusalem already. It has spread quickly. These religious leaders, they hear about this. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now we talked about this last week. The Sanhedrin is kind of like the Supreme Court. They're kind of the, the, the biggest religious kind of uh, um, religious and political um, part of the Jewish culture. They, they play between the nation of Israel and Rome and, and kind of go between Rome and the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and we met a man who sits on the Sanhedrin, a man named Nicodemus. Well, the Sanhedrin is called together because they're concerned about what Jesus is doing. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. In our vernacular, we would say that they're miracles, right? Jesus did these incredible things like turned water to wine and healed people that were sick, and now he raised somebody from the dead. But these religious people, they were kind of attuned to something that, that the more is going on here than just miracles, that, that Jesus is doing things almost like he's pointing people in a direction. These are more like, like signs, pointing people in a specific direction. And what direction were they pointing? That he was doing something brand new, that he was about to introduce something that was a complete departure of what their current religious system had been built on. And as you can imagine, the current religious leaders of this religious system were not comfortable with that. If we let him go on like this, they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And what's the problem with everyone believing in him? You see, they know something that we tend to miss when we read this. Then the Romans, they said, will come and they will take away both our temple and our nation. Because what Jesus is introducing is so new that if everybody follows Jesus, they're not going to need us anymore. They're not going to need the temple anymore. They're not going to need our teaching anymore. We're going to become obsolete. The temple's going to become obsolete. If they continue to follow Jesus, we become abandoned. You see, Jesus came to replace everything that was in place. And in the end, that's ultimately what he does. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Somehow Jesus found out about this, and we don't know for sure how this happened. I, I tend to speculate that Nicodemus, the man who was on the Sanhedrin, who kind of became friends with Jesus at their secret meeting at night, I think that Nicodemus got word out to Jesus. Hey, the Sanhedrin is plotting against you. They're, they're, they're looking for a way to arrest you and to ultimately kill you, Jesus. Jesus, you got to run. you got to do something. you got to get out of here. Therefore, because they were plotting to take his life, he no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Judea, it was where the temple was. Judea is where, this was kind of the, the center point of this religious empire. And Jesus, who was operating there, he now had to begin to operate a little bit more covertly. You see, it was easy enough for him to like move on to Galilee and to continue teaching there, but he didn't want to. He wanted to hang around Judea because Passover was coming. And he wanted to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, in Judea, the, the center of, of this religious movement that he came to bring a conclusion to and, and introduce something new. He could have left. He could have moved on, but he didn't. 
What he did instead was he began to move about covertly. He began to operate covertly. He began to, to travel kind of outside the city and move around outside where people would see him. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John says that the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they sent spies all throughout the city at every entrance to the city, at waterways, at places where people would gather so that the spies could see when Jesus was there, try to separate him from the crowd and arrest him because they knew they couldn't arrest him when he had hundreds or thousands of followers with him. So Jesus is outside the city. He's kind of biding his time, waiting for Passover to get closer till he can make his way into Jerusalem to have the Passover feast, to celebrate Passover with his disciples. It's getting closer and closer to Passover, and as it's drawing closer, Jesus decides to begin his journey into the city. He begins going into the city, and when he does, I'm sorry, I think I just jumped ahead of myself. During his wanderings, Jesus wanders, he goes back to the city of Bethany before he goes into into Jerusalem, where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And the text says that a large crowd so we went from crowds of people following Jesus to this large crowd follow, following Jesus. This large crowd found out that Jesus was there and that he came to Bethany. But listen to this. They didn't come just to follow Jesus. They came but also to see Lazarus. Why would they come to see Lazarus? He'd become this tourist attraction. Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Why was it so important for them to see Lazarus? The chief priests, they heard about this, and they made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Why was Lazarus now such a a fundamental key piece to Jesus' story? Because Lazarus was the evidence of what Jesus came to do. Lazarus was the evidence of who Jesus was and what Jesus was about to initiate. Lazarus was the evidence of brand new. That if they were coming to to see Jesus and see Lazarus, they would not just see the person bringing the message, they would see the message actually lived out in a man who was raised from the dead, Lazarus was the evidence of all that Jesus had come to introduce to the world, of everything that was brand new. For on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And this isn't the point of the message, but I want to stop here to make this very specific point. That that, that if you were a Christian at one point in your life, or you went to church, you went to Sunday school, but at some point you kind of stepped out of faith or you stepped away from, from Jesus because it just felt like you just had to believe in a belief. You just had to had, had a faith in faith, that when you came to church, you had to check your intellect, your knowledge, your science, your justice at the door, because being a Christian was all about just having faith. You just have to have faith in faith. What I want you to know is I think you stepped away prematurely, because first century Christianity wasn't built on that. First century Christianity was built on evidence. They saw Lazarus. They saw the man who was raised from the dead, and they believed in Jesus. Later, when Jesus would die and come back to life, be raised from the dead, they would see the raised body of the man they had just witnessed be crucified, and they believed in him. They saw and they believed. There was evidence, and then there was belief. You don't, Christianity isn't about having faith in faith. It's about having faith in what is. It's about having faith in evidence that Jesus is who he said he was, and that he is, he's doing what he promised to do to bring life, to change things, to make everything brand new. If you've stepped away from faith, if you're thinking about stepping away from faith, because it's just a belief, it's not. You're saved through faith in the evidence of Jesus, of who he is and what he's brought to the world. You don't need to step away. Christianity isn't an exercise in faith in faith. It was built on evidence, and it's still built on evidence today. The next day, the great crowd that had come for this festival, for the Passover feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. 
And again, this is only a big deal because Jesus is just biding his time. He's just waiting till he can get into the city. He's just kind of hanging out. When, when can I get in there? I want to go in. I don't want to be arrested too early. I want to have Passover with my disciples, and then I can get arrested. He's just kind of waiting till he can get into the city. Word begins to spread. There's so much emotion about this, and I, I can't even fabricate how much emotion these people are feeling. This is what they've been waiting for, and every Passover they wait. Is this the year? Is this the year? Is this the year the Messiah is going to come? And now they're with Jesus, and he just raised somebody from the dead, and he's on these incredible things, and, and, and surely this is the year. They're just, these people are excited that something new is coming, that maybe this was the Messiah they've been waiting for. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, the group that were trying to arrest him, they said to one another, see, this is getting us from nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Little did they know how right they were that 2,000 years later, the whole world still goes after him. A world they couldn't possibly even imagine has gone after Jesus because he introduced something that was so radically new to this world that the world desperately needed. They finally decide to make their way to the city it's almost like Passover is getting close. Jesus has had enough. Anticipation is building. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's, let's make our way into the city. So he begins to make his way in. He's, he's traveling with his disciples. There's a large group of people. There's a group of people in Jerusalem who are waiting for him. Thousands and thousands of people are there. Pilgrims are streaming into the city to celebrate Passover. Jesus makes his way towards the city. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, the text tells us. And Jesus was leading the way. And again, meaning that he'd already had this conversation once meaning that he'd already done this with his disciples at one other point in time. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. They're on the road. Imagine this. They're on the road. They're traveling. There's thousands of people with them. They're making their way into Jerusalem, and Jesus stops. and says, hey, guys, we're going to take a break. Just everyone hold tight for a little bit. And he takes his disciples, and they walk off the road. They find an orchard. They sit under a sycamore tree because it's shady. Now, this is, I'm making all this up. No one knows this for sure. But they know that Jesus pulls them off the road and has the conversation. They're sitting under the tree, and it's almost like Jesus is thinking to himself, I know what's about to happen in a few days. And it's completely different than what these guys think is about to happen. So I've got to prep them for this. They think I'm coming in like Joshua, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a warrior, and I'm going to take over Jerusalem and kick out Rome. So he begins to prep them. Guys, <coughs> I know we've covered this once before. But, but let, let me say this again. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man, which is code for the Messiah, Jesus is talking about himself. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Guys, they've been trying to get me the whole time. They've been coming after me, and they're close. They're going to get me now. They will condemn him, talking about himself, to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And I imagine when Jesus is telling, it's beginning to get emotional. He's beginning to tell them, here's what's awaiting me in the next few days, guys. You're excited. You've got smiles. You think we're taking over. No, like nothing could be further. We're going in, and they're going to arrest me, and they're going to beat me. They're going to torture me. They're going to kill me. And he says, but three days later, he will rise. And the disciples, God bless them. They're just like simple-minded guys. Looking at Jesus like, Jesus, you guys got this? Do you know what's coming? <laughs> Jesus. Do you see what's going on? 
We've got thousands of people following us. We've got thousands more waiting for us. We're approaching Passover. You just raised somebody from the dead. No one's going to arrest you. No one's taking you. Like, hey man, you've been right so much, Jesus, but you're wrong. You're, just, you're not reading the right signs here. The signs are telling us you're taking over. This is like triumphant. Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, but you, this whole spitting, flogging, killing, like nothing could be further from the truth, Jesus. No, we don't gotcha. We think you're way off here. Jesus has this little conversation, and then I imagine they get headed back towards the road. The text says then, like immediately then. Like Jesus just gets done telling about how he's going to die. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be punished, but he'll raise again. Immediately after this conversation, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we met them a few weeks into this, this series. They're the, well, some of the first disciples that are asked to follow Jesus. James and John, the sons of, Ze- of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Like, like Jesus, I, I heard everything you said, and I, I don't really get it. I think you're way off. I'm sorry about that whole spitting and flogging and killing thing. But we want you to do whatever we want. Jesus, I, I, I know that sounds awful, this whole death thing, but, but, but would you just do whatever we ask? And, and we read this, and sometimes we laugh like, man, these guys, are, they're just missing it. But how often do our prayers sound like that? God, I know you're trying to do something in people or somewhere, but can we talk about my job? God, like, like I, I know that there's this awful thing happening over in this part of the world and Christians are dying and people are dying and kids are going hungry, but, but seriously, like, can we talk ab- about my house? Sometimes we get so lost in the mix of things, we feel like the disciples. Jesus, I'm so sorry about the, the spitting, the flogging, the killing, the murdering, but would you do whatever we want? And Jesus, in all of his graciousness, looking at these, this ragtag group of apostles and disciples that he put together who clearly aren't getting what he's trying to say, he looks at them, and, and, and he doesn't do what I would do. I mean, if it were me, and I just told my kids, someone's about to arrest and kill me, and they say, Dad, do whatever I want, and I'm going to smack him in the back of the head. And I imagine there's some part of Jesus that wanted to smack him in the back of the head. Jesus, will you do whatever we ask? And Jesus looks at them with all graciousness, and he says this, what do you want me to do for you? Like, sure, I'm going to die. They're going to arrest me. They're going to torture me. But before then, is there something I can do for you? How else can I serve you? Disciples, these two guys, James and John, they kind of lean in. They get close. They want to make sure the other disciples aren't hearing what's happening. So I imagine they begin to whisper a little bit, like, hey, Jesus, look, look. Can you let one of us sit on your right hand and the other one sit at your left hand in your glory? Like, Jesus, when you come into Jerusalem and, and, you know, you said this whole dying, killing thing, but, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing you come in, and we're seeing you take off your rabbinic robes and putting on that emblazoned M with, you know, the flowy cape, and you're going to take over, and you're going to be king, and this is going to be your rule, and you're going to drive out the Romans and set up the empire, just like in the days of King David and King Solomon. That's what we're seeing coming. When you come in and you establish your kingdom, and you're sitting on your throne in just a few days, can I sit on your right and my brother on your left? I mean, just imagine what Jesus could be thinking in this moment. Guys, I just, I just told you I'm about to die. Jesus, like, we know you're number one. Clearly, you're number one, right? Like, give me a J. You're number one. Can I be number two and number three? Jesus is just so patient with him. He says, guys, you don't know what you're asking. 
You think you're ready for this, but, but you're not ready for it. You see, you don't understand that gory precedes the glory. That, that, that to establish the kingdom, to be the Messiah, it's not about praise and honor. It's about sacrifice. It's about taking someone else's punishment. Guys, you're not ready for this. Oh, no, Jesus, Jesus, we're, we're ready. We're with you till the end. And in a few weeks when we get to this part of the story where Jesus is crucified and hung on a cross, his 12 disciples run and abandon him. No, but we're with you till the end, Jesus. Guys, you're not ready for this. You don't know what you're asking me. When the other 10 heard about this, you can imagine their reaction. They became indignant with James and John. But not because the reasons we would have become indignant. They weren't upset. Like, how dare you ask this of Jesus? He just told you he's about to die. No, no. They're upset like, what about me? Jesus, I served. I I fed that guy. I washed, you know, that animal for that guy. And and, like, what about me? And you can imagine Peter, you know, the outspoken one. Jesus, I'm the oldest. And clearly, I'm the best. They they write, they're going to write stuff about me for years to come. What about me, Jesus? Where am I in all this mix? And in the minute where Jesus is trying to relate how important these next few days were about the sacrifice that would happen, his disciples, this group of guys that he's turning this movement, this ecclesia over to, they're fighting about who's going to be greatest in his kingdom. So this, this spat happens, right? They're on the road, there's thousands of people, and they begin to argue about who's going to be greatest. And you can imagine, almost out of embarrassment, all right, sorry guys, stay here, disciples, back over to the tree, let's have another talk. Sit them back down under the tree because clearly they're not getting this. Jesus called them together again. He said, all right, guys, you're missing this. People, stay over there for just a minute. I've got to talk to my disciples because they're just, they're missing this. And if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're a Christian, this is for you. If you're in ministry or you want to be in ministry, this is for you. If you're like me, like a pastor, man, this was written for me. Jesus begins to teach something that I think is so fundamentally important. But it's something the church has missed for years and years and years and years. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, do you know how they rule, how they lord it over their people, how they lord it over them, and how the high officials exercise their authority over them? Guys, do you understand what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, Jesus, we know. They, 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 they rule over the people, that they leverage all their influence and power for their sake. Yeah, Jesus, we know. Why do you think we're asking to be number two and three? We want to be at the top of the heap. We want to be at the top of the pole. We want to be the people that can leverage all of their things so that we have power and we have authority and we have whatever we want. That's what we want. We know how authority works. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah, Jesus, we get it. So you understand. You understand how these rulers lord over other people and they take whatever uh, uh, from the people underneath them for their benefit. Yes, Jesus, we get that. It's kind of like this pyramid scheme. Right? All the people underneath push everything up to the guy up top, and the guy up top gets all the glory and all the credit and all the influence and all the power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're with you, Jesus. That's what we want. And then he says these most powerful words. There are four English words. They were five Greek words, and it is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And it's something we cannot miss. He says, you understand how that authority works? Not so with you. Not so with you. 
If you want to be a part of my kingdom, if you want to be a part of my movement, if you want to be a part of my ecclesia and what I'm going to do when I leave, if you want to be a part, not so with you. You can't lead that way. You can't act that way. It's power and influence is not for the powerful and the influential. It, it, it completely gets turned upside down when I lead. I'm introducing a new way to lead. That's how it used to happen. That's how leaders used to lead. That's how nations used to be run. That's how religious empires used to, used to lead and, and function. Not so with you. I am turning things upside down. I am introducing something brand new. Not so with you. You do not lead that way if you're going to come after me. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you. You guys want to be great? Anyone here want to be great? Two of the disciples, they already tipped their hat to him, right? They already told him, yeah, we want to be great. We want to be the number two and number three. Guys, do you want to be great? Little by little, disciples' hands begin to snake up. Is it good? There's nothing wrong with that. It is good to aspire to greatness. It is good to want to be a leader. It's good to want to have a position where you can make a difference. <clears throat> Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And I imagine, like, quickly the disciples' hands begin to sneak down, like, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like, like how it works. That doesn't sound fun. I know what a servant is. And a servant to us is just a concept. They understood servants. Some of them were servants. Matthew had servants. Being a servant is like, is like going to the back of the line. It's, it's like I've got to be last all the time. I've got to do the stuff nobody else wants to do. Yeah, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to be a servant. Jesus, that doesn't sound like any fun. And Jesus said, I'm not done. I'm going to make it worse. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. It's like, no, wait a second. Like, if servants weren't bad enough, at least servants get paid. Slaves don't get paid. Slaves don't have any rights. Slaves don't have any influence. Slaves don't have any recognition. Yep. This new kingdom I'm establishing, it's about what you have. It's not about what you have. It's about what you use what you have for other people. You want to be great in my kingdom? Learn to be last. Learn to be a slave. Then he turns the conversation around. He says, hey, guys, just look at me. Look at me. For even the Son of Man, again, talking about himself. This is code for himself. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is just my opinion, but I think every Christian should memorize that verse. I think every Christian leader should memorize that verse. We have strayed so far from that. where We feel like our position is about us and about what comes to us. And Jesus said, no, even me, even your Savior, even your Messiah did not come to be served, but to serve and to pour out his life, to give it as a ransom for many. It's not about what I want. It's about what I'm going to do for you. You want to be great in my kingdom? Don't come to be served, but serve and give your life as a ransom for many. It's like, guys, this takes away all excuses, doesn't it? Like the minute you're feeling like you're a little bit too big for your britches, remember these words. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. See, the disciples, they had no idea what was coming. 
They had no idea that Jesus literally meant that he would actually lay down his life as a ransom for many. But that's exactly what he would do. And in that overwhelming, powerful, transformational event, the disciples realized that Jesus was the king who came to reverse the order of things. He came to reverse the order of everything. He came to upset the status quo. He came to throw in a little chaos into a system that had been operating for years and years. Jesus came to turn things upside down. He came to bring an end to what was and to introduce something completely brand new to this world that so many even missed it. You see, Jesus was the king who came and said, I'm going to lay down my life for my subjects. He didn't ask his subjects to lay down his life for him. He actually said, now that I've laid down my life for you, here's what I want you to do as my subjects. Lay down your life for one another. And the amazing thing is that these, these guys got it. After the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a, a, a book in the Bible called the Book of Acts that talks about everything that happens after Jesus' death and resurrection and when he ascends into heaven. And the disciples learned this lesson. As a matter of fact, they learned it so well that the biggest problem with this first century church was that the disciples wouldn't stop serving. They actually had a problem. Peter, would you come and teach a Bible study? No, no, no. I'm serving the widows and the orphans. But Peter, you're the only one who spent time with Jesus. We need you to teach us. Nope, I don't ever want my heavenly father to think that I'm too important to serve those who need it the most. Nope, I'm perfectly content. I'm gonna serve those who need it. I'm gonna serve those in need. I'm gonna serve those in need until they literally had to pry his hands off the plates and give it to somebody else and say, no, no, he's going to serve. Will you teach us? Because you were with him and we need to know what Jesus said. They understood it so emphatically. They would give the rest of their lives serving. But here's the interesting thing. I don't think they got it in that conversation. I think they got it the night after. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks, but they make their way into Jerusalem they have this really triumphant kind of entry. They're celebrating Passover. They make it to this upper room and they're enjoying a feast and, and talking. And I mean, they're just elated. If you could just imagine the emotion, like it's about to happen, man. Tomorrow, he's gonna be crowned Messiah. He's gonna take over as king. Romans are gone. Our life's coming back. We're gonna be blessed. This is what we've been waiting for. We're a part of it. Like people are, are, are praising us. They're asking for our autographs. They're snapping selfies with us. Like they are it. The disciples are it. They are just stoked. And they're enjoying this meal with Jesus and his disciples. And then Something odd happens. Judas gets up from the table to run an errand and no one really knows what that's all about. They kind of ignore it and they keep talking because they're so excited. And then in the middle of their conversation, Jesus gets up and he, he takes off his, his robe and he ties a towel around his waist. <clears throat> and when he began to do this, I imagine they panicked. They panicked because immediately they thought, man, I, I should have thought about this. I should have done this. When we got here, I should have got the towel. I should have washed the feet. Why didn't I think of this? This is so embarrassing. But then it started to hit them. That their Messiah, that their teacher, that their Lord, was he getting ready to wash our feet? And it went from panic to feeling uncomfortable and embarrassed. And Jesus put the towel around his waist and got a bucket got a rag, and got down to start washing their feet, and they were just, there was so much objection. Absolutely not, Jesus. You can't do this. As a matter of fact, Peter actually says, no, you shall never wash my feet. But he did. And I imagine you could hear a pin drop in that place. 
as Jesus made his way from one disciple to the other, from toe to ankle, washing their dirty feet. It was uncomfortable. I mean, that's personal. We don't want people washing our feet now. But their Lord, I mean, they knew what Jesus' hands could do. They saw him raise somebody from the dead. They saw him touch people and have them come literally, like come back to life from diseases and sicknesses that no one else would touch. They saw him embrace widows and orphans and those who were lost and, and, and left to, the, to the, the outskirts of society. They knew what his hands can do. And now he was using those hands to wash their feet. I can just imagine the emotion. I, could, I, I just imagine some of them crying. Some of them just in, in, in total outrage. Don't do this, Jesus, please. I'm not worthy for you to do this. Jesus washes all their feet. He gets up and he takes the towel off and he puts his robes back on and he sits down at the table. He says, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so because this is what I am. I am your teacher and I am your Lord. And now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then he restates that, that whole thing that he said before about the Son of Man not coming to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Except this time he says it this way. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. And when he says that, he's looking at, at his disciples and he said, who's your master? Well, Jesus, you are. You're right. Do you guys think you're better than me? No, no, of course not. John, do you think you're better than me? No, no, no. Peter, do you think you're... No, no, Jesus, I'm not better than you. I've made myself your master. No servant is greater than his master. Meaning that if I have come to serve and I have come to wash feet as your master, as my servant, you're not above that. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, not only because I've taught them to you, but because I have done them for you, I have illustrated it for you, I have showed you how to do it. Go and do it and you will be blessed if you do it. <clears throat> or in other words, hey guys, when you start thinking like you're a big shot, when you start thinking like perhaps you're above other people, go find another foot to wash. But when you start feeling like cleaning the bathrooms is something you shouldn't do, go find the dirtiest stall. When you start thinking like, like those people, you, they're, they're, just, they're dirty and, and you, you can't relate, get right into that mix. When you start thinking like perhaps all of the power and all of the influence is about you, you need to go find another foot to wash. And this started in the first century church and it began to move. But as it started, what was interesting, it started as something completely appalling. It was really appalling to the Greeks and the Roman culture because for them it was built on strength and it was built on pride and it was built on dominance and the strongest and the best and the prettiest and the wealthiest. Those were the ones to be admired. Those were the ones to have influence and power. Those were the ones to lord over the rest. But as the Christian church began to, to practice this and to serve and serve and serve and serve, what was appalling became appealing. Because Christians, they, they, they didn't care about death anymore. When, when villages would be overwhelmed with disease or plagues, Christians would move in and care for the wounded and care for the sick because they no longer feared death. When children were left on the side of the road for dead, like Christians would come in and just adopt and take in every child they could find because life mattered. 
when, when <clears throat> the worst things in society were happening, Christians were there to pick up the pieces because they understood what Jesus said. We're not here to be served. We're here to serve. And something that started as appalling and then became appealing as the first century church began to do this, it became contagious. And Christianity began to spread. And, and this demonstrated love for God, this demonstrated love for people, it began to turn people over to Christianity. And hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people began to turn to Jesus for faith. And, and what started as this cult that worshipped a, a crucified leader that had no territory and no military and no authority overthrew an empire that set out to destroy it because it said, I will serve and I will serve and I will serve. I am not here for me. What can I do for you? And guys, when I hear this story, I think to myself, man, it worked so well in the first century. What if the church got it right today? What would happen to your neighborhood? What would happen to our city? What would happen to this church? What would happen to a nation if the church began to get this right? Let me make it a little bit more personal for you. <clears throat> when, I, when I started in ministry, I was a youth pastor at a church in Massachusetts, and the pastor was this older Italian guy, just an absolutely love, like loving guy. One Friday, he, I mean, he's the guy who like, he showed up to church every day in his suit and tie. Every day. He would clean in his suit and tie. And I show up in my ripped jeans and T-shirts and, you know, <clears throat> Converse. I don't know how he put up with me. One day, I, I, I went into church to find him, and I couldn't find him anywhere. So I'm walking through yelling for him. Finally, I found him in the bathroom on his hands and knees in a suit and tie scrubbing the floor. I was like, Pastor, what are you doing? These old Italian churches, that's what you called him. You didn't even call him by his first name. It was just Pastor. What are you doing? We, we pay people to clean. I, I could do this. And he said, no, no, no. He said, if I ever feel like I'm too good to do this, you need to find someone else. Let me ask you a question. What if we lived every day with the same attitude that Jesus had for his disciples? That in the midst of communicating so, something so personal and so emotional, I'm about to die, they're about to crucify me and torture me. And their response is, no, would you do whatever we want? And Jesus' response to them is, what can I do for you? How can I help? What if we lived every day with that thought? Hey, how can I help? You see, that's a question <clears throat> that oftentimes we don't ask. It's a question that, that may be asked of us, as a leader here, it's asked something that's asked to me all the time. Jim, you look busy. Jim, you look tired. Jim, how can I help? But it is something I forget to ask so often. Guys, how can I help? What if we asked it in our families? What if we asked it in our neighborhoods? What if as a church we just begin to ask it in our school systems? In, in, in <clears throat> you, you pick, you name it. How can I help? How would that change our city? And if the church in America got it right, how would it change our nation? And guys, if the church in the world, and we're talking the entire world, if everyone started living the way Jesus lived, how can I help? What couldn't we do? You see, it changed an empire once. I believe it can do it again. I just think we've got to get our eyes off ourselves and remember Jesus put us here to serve. If you want to be my follower, if you want to be in my ecclesia, if you want to be a part of my movement, 
Not so with you. The greatest in my kingdom is the servant of all. How can I help? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this incredible passage. God, it's inspiring, and at the same time, it is so convicting. For those of us, God, who, who see the wisdom in this but really aren't sure what to do, we just don't know where to start, I pray you'd give us the wisdom, God, to see where we can begin, even if it's just as simple as asking a neighbor, how can I help? Give us the courage to do it, God, because this puts us outside of our comfort zone, and, and, and this is completely upside down and countercultural. This isn't the norm, but this is the brand new that Jesus came to establish. Help us to learn from him and help us to become servants of all. And as we do, God, I pray we would see people begin to connect the dots, that we're not here for us, but we were sent here for them. I give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.